What is the book that you're working on? Erotic feminism. Oh my god. Okay, erotic feminism. Plato and the Platonic tradition. No, that just ruined it. Hi, and welcome to Good is in the Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and today I have a special guest. She's my friend from grad school, and of course, I had to pull her aside and be like, hey, can you be on my podcast? And she said yes. Thank goodness. She is a professor at Gonzaga University. She's an expert in Neoplatonism. She's edited over five volumes of scholarship on Plato, over 20 articles on Plato and the Platonic tradition. I mean, she's amazing. And she is working on a book on erotic feminism. Welcome, Dr. Daniel Lane. Hi. Hey. I should throw out, she and I have been to the Middle East twice (laughs) together. (laughs) And Malaga. We partied in Malaga. Yeah. So we're grad school friends from Leuven. We both got our PhDs there. Yes. That's where we met. Supposedly, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they say. That's our story. That's our story. We're sticking to it. (laughs) Okay. Something that I really enjoy is the ancient Greek concept of the good life. And I find myself coming back to it a lot. And you have a class called Ancient Philosophical Therapy. Yes. So tell me about that. What is your syllabus like? So first off, the goal of the course is to actually let students know that ancient philosophy has a lot that they can learn from, and not just learn from, but incorporate into their daily lives as something that can make them happier, healthier, and more in tune with who it is that they say that they are. And... I think that's always been my goal as an expert in ancient philosophy is to show students that these old dead white guys, they can be transformed and incorporated into who it is that we say that we are. And and so I begin the syllabus with Plato, actually. People often think of Plato in disparaging terms in the way that Nietzsche presented him as an ascetic, as mm-hmm. there is this transcendent world and we got to cut ourselves off from the body uh, to incorporate a life of idealism and forms, so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but I I highly disagree with this interpretation of Plato because I I want to show students that Plato invites us to see that we are broken and suffering. He describes it in the Timaeus as born upside down. And this upside downness is a shakenness. It is a it's a sense of feeling like there's nothing but relativism relativism, nothing mean everything means nothing. And then how it is that we go about our lives so as to turn ourselves right side up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so all of Platonism is a therapy. So the Greek word therapy or therapeian, right, actually means an attendant. So uh, an attendant? An attendant, a okay. servant that attends to you. And so that to be to practice a therapy is to have something that attends or serves your life. And so that philosophy was a kind of therapy that was supposed to serve you in a way that would make you happier and not happier in the sense that you might be thinking of. Well, I guess that's what, um, I mean. what do you mean by happier? Uh, so udaimonia, oh my goodness, udaimonia, right, means to flourish, right? What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to flourish as a human being? So I often think of happiness or Americans often think of happiness as feeling pleasure all the time, feeling sexy all the time, but that's that's stupid and ridiculous. Like that's <laughs> never going to happen. We're never going to feel sexy and happy all the time. What Plato taught me and what I hope Plato teaches my students is we can be happy in our brokenness. We can be happy um, with tears in our eyes, recognizing that we we are suffering creatures. And that's what Plato, his therapies, remind us that we are 
we are in need. We are needy, desiring things. And how is it that that we can be needy, desiring things and still flourish as human beings ought to flourish? How is it that we can be transcending what it means to be human and recognizing what it means to be human? And 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 so one of the things that Plato did was. So it says, look, we're born upside down, uh, but our entire way of life, right, should be oriented towards the good. And that once we orient ourselves to the good, this is the conversion. And so in my therapy class, I like to emphasize the conversion of the soul that Plato's inviting. Keep in mind, you don't like the word soul that often has for um, Judeo-Christians connotation that some of us might want to reject. Soul, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. If you like the word psyche, right? convert your psyche because psyche is the greek word for soul and we use it now in the term psychology and you know of course freud uses it so on and so forth and so i remind my students that i say mind or character yeah i and i like to emphasize psyche because i think students get the scientific idea out of psyche but at the same time as something more than mind because the psyche is both intellect right so that here we yes our psyche is definitely a, a thinking thing but psyche also connotes the term the, the erotic aspect, the desiring aspect. I mean, so that I want things, I need things. And mm-hmm. Plato reminds us to be a psyche is to be both intellect and desire, that we're not just one or the other, and that we have to make these two things come into harmony with each other if we're going to flourish. And, and that process in the Republic is described as a conversion point, that most of us are just satisfied with what life feeds us, right? You're supposed to say this and do that and think this and believe that. But if we really want to flourish, we've got to turn ourselves away from the standard status quo life and start to really struggle so that to be happy is to turn to a life of struggling, of inquiry and investigation and never being satisfied with anybody spoon feeds us. And and that process is going to be hard. And that's the beauty of it is teaching students that hard, that, that, that struggle is actually where you're happiest, right? When you're letting yeah. yourself out of that cave of illusions and out into this world of a different kind of confusion the one that you're you're excited about one that you 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 want to keep wrestling with and and plato very much converted me in that process so i remember being a 22 year old kid who really didn't know what the fuck i was doing can i cuss on this yes, thing sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and reading the allegory of the cave or plato's phaedrus where he describes the healing of the human soul as a growing of wings that we grow our wings and it's like a gnashing of teeth he describes it like like you cut teeth and so it's painful it's it's not it's not a, a good feeling but this is flourishing. This is happiness. Um, and so that's that's how the class begins, is in Plato, and recognizing that to be happy is, is, in fact, to recognize the struggle of existence. I think that saying, uh, you're reminding me of, the, or that this saying is some derivative of that, that courage comes from leaving your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I know that from my own projects, that when something scares me, that that means I need to go for it because that means I'm going to learn more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of failure involved. And I've even told my students that successful people have just failed more often. Yeah. And that sounds like what the struggle is that, that we learn from Plato is to keep going. You do fail. And every time you learn and you become more excellent, you become stronger. Well, the way I like to think of it is a recognition of an always incompleteness, that we're always needy. So that you know, how many times have we gotten exactly what we desired? And then the next day we wake up and we're like, fuck, I don't know. What I'm still miserable. I'm still, I, I'm, there's still that pit in my stomach mm-hmm. that says, 
I'm not satisfied. And what Plato teaches us is, yes, that's what it means to be human is we're never fucking satisfied. We always want more and more and more. Now, and we can do two things with that. We can always be insatiable, in, like un- unable to be satisfied, right? Um, and this, I think, is what happens to, you know, all sorts of people who just spend the rest of their lives searching for the next pleasure after the next pleasure after the next pleasure versus a life that recognizes the beauty of that insatiability, to mm-hmm. rest in that insatiability as the virtue of being human and and the drive for a, a perfection that we will never actually achieve, but to see that that's actually our perfection it's and so not to always look for what's going to complete it but to see how our incompleteness drives us further and makes us more than we ever thought we could be yeah i see this is why john stuart mill would have chosen socrates to say it is better to be socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied exactly because a fool can never be satisfied he only thinks he is that's the illusion of it Uh um and so yeah oh that's great so i'm wondering what do your students pick up on when when they are going through the syllabus how do they relate it to their everyday lives okay so the plato part of my class is actually I think of it as the inspiration part of the class. It gets them like, ooh, excited. But if you're looking for handy tools for how to live a better life, I always say when we get into the second and third part of the courses on Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, and then Neoplatonism, because all of these traditions actually have those handy therapeutic devices. So... Uh, Epicureanism, it's a philosophy that very different from Plato. There's no transcendence. There's there's no nothing. There's nothing more than the fact that we're atoms and void. We're corpses basically, uh, walking around pursuing pleasure. <laughs> I don't agree. <laughs> yeah, that I don't. Sounds like that's a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> we're corpses basically. Yeah, that's. Basically, I mean, we're just we, we got some animation. We're moving around. I love it. We defecate. We eat. We have sex. That's, um, that's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> but the Epicureans are great because they teach us that they're. There are certain pleasures that are better than others, right? Pleasures that can't be satisfied versus pleasures that can be satisfied. And the pleasures that can be satisfied are the ones that are complete. And all pleasures, sex, drinking, things like this, they're incomplete. They'll, they'll always need more mm-hmm. versus the pleasures of the mind, right? And these pleasures of the mind are satisfied by friendships. And so the Epicureans had a therapy or they thought of their, their philosophy as a therapy for the soul because it taught us that the intellectual conversation like we're having right now satisfies satisfies us and lets us realize, oh, we have this moment. The pleasure of the present moment is available to you right now. And if you're not taking it, then you're always going to be unhappy. And so really concentrating students to see the value of pure existence that can happen once you're self-reflective enough to recognize that you're alive right now and you have everything you could possibly need in this present moment. And what I find really intriguing about the Epicureans is that they that one of the therapies they had was to sit with friends and to confess all the times that mm-hmm. they were in they, they couldn't be sated and they were they were miserable and so you get the beginning of this process as, as we'll see in contemporary therapy of admitting all the ways in which you weren't reflective and weren't able to enjoy the pleasure of the present moment and that process happened with friendships and so I love here's the beginnings of the importance of the couch and needing to talk it out. Uh, the Stoics, they're my they're so if you practice cognitive behavioral therapy, you are basically a Stoic. Cognitive behavioral therapy was based upon principles outlined by Stoicism. So the Stoics wanted you to feel Uh, in a way that you recognize what is up to you and what is not up to you. And the only thing that is up to you is your thinking in the present moment. So that 
the point is is that you recognize that whether somebody sideswipes you when you're driving on the LA uh, freeway or whether or not your kid has really bad eczema or you uh, just got broken up with, none of these things are really up to you. What is up to you is how you respond to them. And so you're thinking about what it is in your control. You are what is in your control. And you let yourself be a slave to yourself and your emotions and your desires if you get angry or upset or you think you something else could have been done. But rather, you have to focus your attention on your mind and your thinking and then experience a kind of joy. So a lot of people think the Stoics don't have, they say no, no to the emotions. But the, the Stoics actually say, no, once you have control of what is actually in your control, your thinking, you'll experience a kind of joy for existence, kind of uh, letting go of what is in not in your power and and this leads to the final aspect of actions that once you have your emotions and your thinking in check you will act with a sense of duty towards other human beings because you'll see that the connection between other human beings is what really matters that's one of the things that's in your control and that you have a duty to yourself and other people to care about uh, the well-being or happiness of others and I love the cynics. They're they're one of my favorites. They're the this ones. This is really great. Go ahead. No, I'm just thinking this is really great. I've told my students, and I haven't been able to articulate why. But I mean, now that you're saying this, I see what it is. I've challenged them that the first thing that they do in the morning is not check their phone. Right. And I told them because if you start your day, what you're doing is if you're looking at email or social media, you are responding to how other people think of you mm-hmm. or what they need of you. Start the day doing something for yourself. I don't care if it's to walk the dog. I don't care if it's to do, I don't know, like just something, read something for yourself. And it's because to start your day in control of yourself and it also removes, it's a very powerful thing and it's a very freeing thing yeah. to think about what you can control. Well, Marcus Aurelius, I think so. If you're looking for a textbook manual for how to live a better life, read Marcus Aurelius. He's got all sorts of different kind of uh, activities you can do. One of the, the best ones is to thank all the assholes in your life. Find, take all those people who you supposedly gave you trauma and to look for a way in which they shaped your thinking right now, right? Mm-hmm. So I thank my mother for the resolve that she has given me. I thank the guy who sideswiped me for the opportunity not to get angry when I ought not to have gotten angry. And and so here, yes, you're right. Like that there's So we'll make a make a list of assholes. Yes, make a list of assholes. <laughs> this is a new type of gratitude journal. I love it. We'll make a list and the next one, what did they teach you yeah and and what Marcus Aurelius says is like when you're walking your dog practice these things this is what you need to be doing um, when you wake up in the morning instead of checking your Facebook come up with practices that will prepare you to be the king the the king of your your mind or the queen of your mind and so when you're walking your dog practice the asshole therapy when you're walking your dog (laughs) practice (laughs) practice the ability to think about all the bad shit that could happen in your life your kids dying your mother dying and to prepare yourself to recognize that this existence was a gift, Mm -hmm. right? And that right now I'm going to prepare myself for all these traumas, not so that I don't grieve when it happens, but that I know that these things aren't in my control when they happen, so that I don't go off the rails when these things happen. Do your students ever talk about things like social media? I mean, what is another way in which they respond to this material? Sometimes I think they've got it. 
they have a whole world that's so different from what you and I deal with. I mean, peer pressure has always been a thing, right? Wanting to fit in has always been a thing. And then I look at them now and I'm just thinking, I feel like they need to be, I don't know, they're on in a different way that's completely... It's difficult. It causes a lot of stress. There's been studies that show that if the longer you're on Facebook or social media, the worse you feel. So I, I quit social media when Trump got elected. I know. <laughs> and Cliff, she's gone. Uh, and I, to be honest, I thought I thought it would make my life better. I thought you know not being on social media. So I agree to some extent that social media causes us to be more anxious. The Epicureans. Uh, for, to go back to the to my expertise that said look politics is just going to make you anxious so stop being involved in politics and I think social media for a large part is politics maybe not presidential politics or American politics but politics comes from the the Greek for polis of creating a community and so what we get on social media is the illusion of communities and the illusion of communities that are run on drama and likes and then I would bring in the Stoics and say look all you're looking for are likes. All you're looking for is for someone to see you. And then I get into the, this is what I tell my students, like, why is it that you want to be on social media? It's the same reasons why I wanted to be popular in high school. I wanted people to see me. I wanted to matter. And when you start looking at social media for all the virtues, all the reasons why we want to be on it, then we see that there's a beauty behind it. And also the human desperations, human neediness. And and so I now look at social media with that, Oh, that like that, that pathos, the feeling of why people are there, and then hopefully it's taught me to give that to people because I'm learning from my my son that there's a whole world in there that's just as beautiful as the world of face to face. We just have to look for the human in it and not desensitize ourselves to the the logic and the thinking that goes behind posting that Instagram picture or that selfie. Why is it that you want to post a beautiful selfie? Well, because you want to see that you have a beautiful soul and stop thinking of your beautiful soul as on the face of things, but on the desire to post the selfie. Yeah, it seems like that very thing of uh, confusing the concept of happiness seems to be at the heart there that there is a spike in pleasure they've measured it when you're getting all sorts of likes and Instagram knows it mm-hmm. and they have an algorithm in such a way that they will have it so that you have a burst of likes all at once mm-hmm. so you'll post something and maybe not see any activity and then all of a sudden you see 20 likes mm-hmm. and they do that because they know that that's part of the addiction and you'll keep checking it if they do it in bursts instead of real time and that spike in happiness is not what the ancient Greeks were talking about and we're mistaking it and I think that that's actually one of the biggest problems with the struggle for acceptance like you're saying understanding what is in your control Mm. because that's completely contingent on what other people think yeah I know I parallel it with in Aristotle's ethics he talks it's in book one when he talks about the type of life one must lead in order to achieve eudaimonia. And he starts out by saying what you don't do. And the life, so it's a process of elimination. The life of pleasure, he says no. The next one is public honor. And I put up in parentheses on the board, I'll put up fame. I said, maybe if we translate this now. And the reason it wouldn't work is because it's completely contingent on others. And it's like you're saying with the ancient Greeks, happiness can't come from what's outside of your control. Right. This is great, Danny. You're a great professor. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think so. Um, no, I, I. It just it makes when I teach the ancient Greek philosophers with an eye towards 
getting students to feel and think about who it is they say that they are, it, it lights me up. It makes, it. I can feel the reality of human flourishing when we're doing this. Yeah. Um, and I don't feel the reality of human flourishing at one o'clock in the morning when I'm surfing through the internet. I want to communicate that to my students. Yeah. Like, do you really feel like you're flourishing when you're envying your ex-boyfriend's Instagram pic? Uh-huh. Uh, so... I want to say, look, the excitement you're feeling in my class, right? The curiosity you're feeling in my class. This, this is what human happiness is. Mm-hmm. Hold on to that, and don't let it just be reserved to the room of my classroom, or my the the, the space of my classroom. Yeah. So, great. Okay, I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Also, just throw in there just one last bit. Danny experienced her first earthquake. <laughs> I'm getting the hell out of California today. (laughs) She is going back to Gonzaga. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good is in the Details. If you have any questions or thoughts, you can tweet me at gdolsky or at in the details pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review, some stars on Apple Podcasts, or pass it on to a friend. Also, I want to give a shout out to my friends who have really supported me on this endeavor. Thank you so much. You are the best. I love you guys. Courtney, Angela, Liz, Caitlin, Angelina, and Dan, and my rotating guest hosts, Rudy Salo, Jacob Weber, and Constantine Hatcher. Thank you. I am so grateful.